There's a phrase that says, Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son. And then in that last song, I'll praise my maker. The, again, just the, the contradiction in terms, in a sense, of the reality that God is our maker, and yet we can come to him as a result of what Christ has done for us. The story is told of a woman who lived in a very religious culture and a very religious setting. She was a sinner and an outcast, not able to live up to the religious law put before her, not unlike perhaps many of us experience today. Any attempts she made at doing good were scorned by the religious leaders of the time. She was, after all, a sinner, the scum of the earth. She spent her time seducing men, regardless of marital status, meddling in other people's business. The religious leaders began to hate her more and more. She ruins men and families by her seduction, they would say. She is a blight in our neighborhood. We can't have a God-fearing culture here when she is around. They conspired to have somebody watch her all the time as much as possible. All they needed to do was catch her in some capital offense and they could legally stone her to death and rid the earth of her. The woman wondered, what is God like? She knew he existed. She'd been taught about him from little up. Nobody knows how it happened. But one day, they caught her in adultery in the very act, no question. Here is our chance, the leaders said to each other. We can rid the earth of her according to our law. And they dragged her out of the city kicking and screaming. As they did so, the woman's thoughts raced. What is God like? Is he spiteful? Is he vengeful? Just like the religious leaders? He must be, she reasoned, for that was her picture of God and of religion. What would it be like spending an eternity experiencing punishment from this same God, this same vengeful God who must hate her as bad as they did. They dragged her out of the city and quickly picked up stones. Blind with fury and indignation, they prepared to stone her to death. She stumbled and fell and positioned herself to take blow after blow from their hands. But the blow never came. She waited and waited, but nothing happened. Finally, she had the courage to look up. The religious leaders were talking to another man, another one of them, another religious leader. She heard them ask him, Master, this woman was taken in the act of adultery. Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Their words were vengeful and spiteful and hateful. She recognized them. She could tell that there was no mercy in those words and no hope for her. Why were they prolonging this? She knew what the other religious man would say. They all said the same thing. But the other religious man didn't say anything. Instead, he pretended that he didn't hear them and stooped and wrote something on the ground. What was he doing? She could not see what he was writing. They continued asking him, Master, what do you say that we should do? Should we obey the law of Moses or not? Everyone knew that was just a rhetorical question with an easy answer. But 
then this religious man said something astonishing, something unlike anything she had heard before in her life. And he said this, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Everyone gasped. Heresy, one of the religious men grumbled. Foolishness, said another. How dare he compare our minor shortcomings to her sinful way of life? They were all thinking. The woman was, the woman was still certain that stones were coming. These were religious men. She was sure most of them had never sinned. Certainly there would at least be one of them that hadn't sinned. She braced herself. Then the unheard of happened. The oldest man left. He left. He walked away. Then the next oldest, the next oldest, and the next oldest. Until only the visiting religious man was left and the woman herself. But this isn't over, she reminded herself. He's probably proven a point that he is the only one, the only one without sin, and he alone can stone me. But then she saw his face and eyes full of grace and hope and love. Where are your accusers, he asked. Has no one condemned you? Only then did she have the courage to look around. To her astonishment, they had all left. No man, Lord, she said. Neither do I condemn you, the religious man went on to say. Go and sin no more. What? That's heresy. How can a man say that? How can a man say, go and sin no more? This woman was deserving of death. I want to talk this morning about the doctrine of justification. And it can sound like a big, dry, boring word, but it's not. It's not. The story that I just told is a story that's happened over and over again. It's probably happened to each one of you in, in our lives, in our hearts. Because at the end of the day, regardless of how pious and well-kept and how good we look, all of us have committed sin. The Bible is clear. What I want to look at today in particular is four questions. What is justification? Why is it necessary? How does it take place? And what are some of the results of justification? You can't possibly go into all of the results, but I want to look at just a few of them this morning. So first of all, what is justification? The word justification is the idea or the act of pronouncing someone righteous or acquittal to declare righteous. My high school teacher said it this way, the way that you can remember this word for the test. We're not going to have a test, but he was trying to remind us what different words meant. And he said, you can look at it this way. It's just as if I never sinned. So if you need a simple phrase to help you remember what justification is, it is just as if I never sinned. I don't think that's a full and complete definition, but at least it helps you remember a little bit of the direction of the word. Justification is not only 
to be declared not guilty. As a matter of fact, I don't think that's a great definition of the word to say that justification is to be declared not guilty, but rather it is to be declared righteous. Righteous before God. Now, we could say, based on that story from John about the woman caught in adultery, we could say, well, this one was justified, or she was freed, or she wasn't condemned, because the rest had all committed sin. And that's not justification. Justification isn't something that we get because, you know what, we're all in the same boat, we've all sinned, we've all done the same thing, and so we're just all justified. It doesn't work that way. That's not the way that it works. The reality is, had that woman not met Jesus Christ, she would have not have been justified. Not just any man can say go and sin no more. As a matter of fact, no man can say that. Only God can say that. And that is why Jesus had the authority to say what he said. Why is justification necessary? I want us to help, help, think, help us think through just a bit, understanding the difference between where we are and where we should be according to God's standard. God requires perfection, but all have sinned. And in our, in our culture today, and even in our Christian culture, there's this mindset that, you know, God doesn't really require perfection. You know, we can sin a little bit here and there, and, it, and it's okay. You know, we can, we can mess up here and there, and it's okay. Um, we're never fully going to be perfect anyway, so you know what? I'm sure God would never require something that we couldn't do. No, that's not true. God requires perfection, complete perfection. You can look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I, and I want us to notice, turn, turn to Matthew chapter 5 and look there at verse 48. I want us to notice where this verse comes in, in Scripture. Because it comes right after Jesus said things like, You have heard in the past, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. You have heard in the past that it was said that thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you that if you've hated your brother without a cause, you've committed murder. Jesus was saying difficult things, difficult for us to grasp, to understand, to live out, hard things to live out. And then at the end, he says this, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Can you imagine the Jewish people at the time listening to that message? Be perfect? We can't keep the law. We've not been keeping the law for thousands of years. Nobody's perfectly kept the law. Now perhaps some of the scribes and Pharisees get close, they might have thought. I mean, look at how they live. Look at how they dress. Look at how they attempt to do everything perfectly. Now we know otherwise. We know the Pharisees weren't perfect because we have the perspective that Jesus Christ gives us in the Gospels. But if you were to live at that time, and would have seen those men, you might have thought, 
for a moment that they're pretty close to being perfect, to, to attaining what God is looking for. Matthew 19 is another example, the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. We'll turn there and read a few verses. I want to look here at Jesus' response. Matthew 19, looking at verse, starting in verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And that's often a question that we ask. What do I need to do to make it to heaven? What do I need to do to have eternal life? Well, first of all, Jesus said, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter life, keep the commandments. Well, which ones? You know that in order to um, live eternally, we have to keep God's law. Well, which, which laws? Which three of them or which five of them do I need to keep in order to make it? Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What do I lack? There was an acknowledgement of something. There's still something missing here. I haven't physically murdered anyone, been physically stolen anything. I haven't lied. You think he was telling the truth? I've honored my father and my mother. Rather than challenging him on this, Jesus says, if you will be perfect. I find that to be an interesting statement. Because innately, we all know that God demands perfection. We all want to be perfect. We know that's what God wants of us. That's what God is asking of us. And we all want to do that. And so Jesus said, okay, if that's what you want, this man never said that's what he wants. Jesus knew that's what he was after. If you, if you will be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And he went away sorrowful. I find it interesting that oftentimes people are asking Jesus these questions with an agenda. I ask Jesus these questions with an agenda. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I want to be able to check the three boxes and go, and then I can be done. And it's not that way, and Jesus indicates that again and again and again. Perfection has been described in this way, doing the right things at the right time for the right reason. It's not a very theological definition, but I, it's probably fairly accurate. Doing the right things at the right time for the right reason. And right here is according to God's standard um, as we would define it. So are you perfect? There are times when we do the right things. There are even times when we do the right things at the right times. But how many times do I do the right thing at the right time for the right reason? And if I do the right thing at the right time, I usually get so proud and self-righteous, which proves that I was doing it for the wrong reason all along. And so we get caught in this challenge. Even if we may do some right things and we may look good at times, what is our motive 
behind these things. Romans does a really good job of helping us see the heart of mankind. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Just scan over verses 18 to 32, which talk about the sins of the heathen. And as we look at this, we can see these are the sins that are out there. Eh, probably not in here. Are they? These are the sins of the heathen. For the wrath of the God is revealed to heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. It goes on to say that even though they're able to see creation, even though they're, they're clearly able to see God's eternal power and, God, and Godhead in such a way that they don't have an excuse, but even though they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful they became vain. They changed um, the glory of the corruptible God into an image. In verse 23, God gave them up to uncleanness, lust of their own hearts. They changed the truth of God into a lie, worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections. Uh, they changed the natural use of women and men, burning their lust to one another, and on and on it goes. And then there's a list at the end of vile sins. But then in chapter 2, Paul goes on to mention the sins of the religious. You see, not only are the sins out there, they're not only the Gentiles, they're not only the Greeks, but they're also among the Jews, among the religious people. Chapter 2, verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law shall perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. And we know what that means. Because we've heard the law. We know the law. We understand the law. We've read it. We've memorized it. But we know what verse 13 means when it says, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. And that hits us as religious people. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. So the Gentiles, even though they don't have the law, they can still do right things. And the things that they do can become a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing and or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. So we see that throughout history, not only was it the heathen that sinned and that didn't follow God, but it was also the Jews, the religious people as well. Looking through the Old Testament again and again and again, we see the religious people failing the law of God, what God had commanded them. Just like the woman in the, sto in the first story that I told from John chapter 8, I believe it is, we are all helplessly depraved and unable to save ourselves from our sinfulness. And we must understand this depravity if we are fully going to grasp the idea, the concept of justification. And I believe at times we lose sight of this as we live in our orderly and disciplined lives. 
and, and those things are good. We live in these ways, and we try to keep sin and imperfection at bay. Jason preached a few weeks ago about sin and explored our sinfulness before God. Last Sunday, Marcus preached on mourning our sin. Do we mourn our sin? Do we see how desperately sinful and helpless we are before God? Until we see our sin as God sees it, we cannot possibly experience justification. We must remember where we have come from in order to fully appreciate justification. I think Paul does this really well. He does it in Ephesians chapter 2. You can turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll look at the first three verses there. And you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. It puts us all in the same boat. Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, religious people, people that grew up in the church, people that grew up out in society. And we might say, well, that's not me. I'm not there. I didn't do those things. Think about it. Have you walked according to the course of this world? Have you had your conversation in times past in the lusts of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind? If so, you were by nature the children of, of wrath, just as they were. We are all condemned by the Ten Commandments themselves. If you've seen any of Ray Comfort's videos, very interesting how he uses the Ten Commandments to reach into people's conscience, to reach into their heart. Because today in our culture, things are becoming permissible. Things are becoming okay. Regardless of how out there and how um, wild and crazy they might seem, our culture is doing its level best to make everything look okay. That's fine. You can do that. You can do that if you want. That's okay. Allow thing, everything to be permissible. And you might think, well, that's, that's not in here. We're, we're affected. We are affected by the culture around us. We're affected by what we see. We're affected by what we hear. We're affected by what our coworkers talk about at work. We're affected by what we experience. And so I want us to be careful with this. I find in my own heart, in my own thought process, this very thing of thinking, well, that's okay. That's not the worst thing in the world. No, it's sin. We need to call it what it is and not be okay with it. I find it very interesting that when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He again went right to the heart. Because he could have, com he could have picked many commandments. He could have said, well, the greatest commandment is to honor the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. He could have said the greatest commandment is don't kill. What's greater than that? Don't steal. Don't lie. There's many things he could have picked. 
but he went right to the heart. He went right to the heart, and he, com- he picked the two commandments that we can never fully follow. He picked the two commandments that no human has ever fully followed, ever. And that is, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Impossible. Can you imagine what the people listening thought? Jesus, we've been trying this for 2,000 years. We can't attain. We can't reach it. We can't do this. It can't be done. There's no way that we can possibly attain that level of perfection. So God demands perfection. Secondly, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees doesn't cut it. Can you imagine, again with me, the response of the people in Matthew 5.20 when Jesus said, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Let's just turn there. Matthew 5.20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine how that would have felt? These were the men who studied the law. These were the men who dressed properly. These were the men that obeyed the law. At least it appeared that way. How can anyone make it? I want us to take a moment and contrast God's righteousness with men's righteousness because this is another thing that affects us if we're not careful. It's all around us. Man has been attempting to make it on his own righteousness since the fall. Adam and Eve's desire to define good and evil on their own terms, that was the first attempt to make it on their own righteousness. Cain's attempt to offer his own sacrifice rather than the sacrifice that God required, attempting to find righteousness in something other than what God required. All throughout history, mankind has set up structures to develop his own righteousness, to develop and to keep his own righteousness. These structures, again, included the leaders in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. And Jesus had the audacity to say what he said about them. And again, I want to remind us, these men were as perfect as you can get on your own strength. They followed the law to a T. They went out of their way and took great pains to to tithe the smallest spice. They dressed perfectly. They were always at the right place at the right time and saying the right thing. They knew the scriptures inside and out. They could explain and expound on anything. How could someone's righteousness exceed that? But what was their righteousness based on? Works? 
praise of men done to be seen of man, as we've seen in our Sunday school lesson the last number of weeks, based on who their physical father was. We are Abraham's children, therefore we are who God wants us to be. And we're not exempt from this. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Paul wasn't exempt from this, from the temptation to believe that somehow he had something in his flesh that would please God. And he explains it here in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. But then he goes on to say this. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. I think what Paul is saying here, if any of you think that you have a reason to trust in the flesh, just wait till you hear my list here. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. It's a pretty impressive list. It's a pretty impressive list of accomplishments. And we might tend to think, well, that doesn't really apply. Yes, it does apply. Think about your list. Think about your list of accomplishments. Take a moment and think about it. I could say this. I could say I'm, I'm as beachy as they get. My great-great-grandfather, CJ, was a charter member of Weavertown Church. My great-grandfather, George, and my grandfather, Chris, were ordained there. I did my time at CBS, VS in New York City, overseas missions trips, visiting missionaries, serving the less fortunate. I went to local Christian schools known for sound theology and academic leadership. I spent seven years in Bible quizzing, having memorized the books of Ruth, Ephesians, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, parts of Genesis, Matthew, John, and Acts. I graduated from SMBI with Bible and theology. I follow the written standards of my church and do my best to follow the unwritten ones. Now, many of you would have a longer list and more impressive list than mine. But I want you to take a moment and think about that. Think about your accomplishments. Because I think this is really important. List them out in your mind. And then let's read what Paul says about it. Verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom, I, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Did you hear that? Take that, take that list of accomplishments that you've been thinking about, that you have. Paul says, I count these items as loss. And then he takes it a step farther and says, I ac actually, I count them as dung. You know what that is? Animal manure. 
that's what I count them as. Now, does that mean those things are of no value? Well, let's, let's see what he says here. He says, I'm setting all these things aside because they cannot make me right with God. If I am using these things, if I am gathering these things up, if I am piling them up together to give them as a sacrifice to God, to make God somehow happy and pleased with me, I'm just as good off getting the pile of manure and giving it to God. We know better than that. We know that's not what God wants. And yet sometimes we do that. I don't believe that Paul is saying these things have zero value in his life, and I'll explain that in a minute. But I think what he's saying is, I am going to set these things aside so that they don't distract me from my relationship with Christ, from my relationship with God. I am not going to allow these things that I've experienced, these things that I've done, these things that are meaningful in the world system and meaningful in the world's religious system, not just in the heathen system, but in the world's religious system. And I'm going to set those things aside so that they don't keep me from my relationship with Christ. And I'm going to view those things as they are and not hold them up for what they are not. Now, Paul does share in other passages that studying the scripture, which he did as a Pharisee, that there was, that there was value in these things. Uh, he, he, in the passage that, uh, that we read in Romans chapter 3, in verse 2, uh, Paul says that there is an advantage to being a Jew. Yes, there is an advantage. And that the advantage is that we have the scriptures. That's an advantage. And we can study the scriptures. That's an advantage. But we can never study the scriptures hard enough to make us right with God. Can't be done. We can never read them enough. We can never try our best to follow them enough. We can never do enough to make ourselves right with God. Paul also used his education as a foundation for understanding why Christ came, understanding Christ's purpose, as well as sharing the gospel with the Jews and the Gentiles. What we have in scripture gives us a foundation for understanding why things happen the way they happen, for understanding God's long-term plan. Huge blessing, very important. But we can never, never, never do enough study enough, work hard enough, be good enough to make God happy. As a matter of fact, all those things that we have ever done and that we do that are for the purpose of somehow making God happy 
in hopes that it takes away our sin are just as worthless as a pile of manure. And Paul makes that clear in this passage. The Jews had fallen into the trap of every other religion out there. And I want us to be careful as Christians, because if we're not careful, this theology seeps into Christianity as well. And, and the basic framework of every religion out there is this. You begin with a religious experience, an initiation. This initiation puts you on a way, which you do your best to follow as good as you can. You do your best to do as much good as you can, learn about it as much as you can, with the hopes that you do more good than you do bad. And that's in the hopes that when you die and you experience the final assessment, your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds and you will be accepted. Our drive as humans for self-righteousness is so strong that it's woven into every religion out there, including a lot of different brands of Christianity. Many Christians would not say that it's part of their belief system, but would live that way. That somehow I experience the initiation, whatever it is, maybe it's baptism, whatever that in initiation is, now I'm on the way, now I'm going to do more good than bad in hopes that when I die, God will accept me. It's not that way. It won't work. You won't make it. You can't do it. And we could take an analogy for marriage, and a number of you have probably heard this. It's one of my favorites when I think of the idea of justification. And I, and I think there's a reason why it works so well. I think God intentionally um, has the marriage relationship to be an example of Christ in the church. As we think of marriage, if I would have gone to Carla when I proposed and I would have said, listen, I really, I really do love you. I really do. I have this book. There's a lot of rules in the book. And if you're careful to follow the rules in this book, as careful as, as possible for the next 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, for as long as you live, then I will consider accepting you. She would have said no, right, ladies? You would say no to that in a heartbeat. No way. There's no way. Why? Why is that so jarring in relationships? It's because of this. In relationships, when there's a friendship, we expect immediate acceptance. Not because of something that we've done, not because of... of um, perhaps not even because of who we are. We just expect acceptance in a friendship. We don't expect to have to do and live perfectly all the time to be accepted. And so because I've accepted Carla and she's accepted me, we are now free. We are now free to obey the law of each other because of the acceptance we don't have to obey the law to gain that acceptance, but we've already gained the acceptance and therefore we're free to obey 
the law of each other, and we could expound on that more, and I won't do that this morning. So we know better than that in our relationships, and yet somehow we tend to apply that to God. We find it hard to believe that God would really give us the free gift. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll look at a verse there. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.23, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. Now, why was this a stumbling block to the Jews? I believe it was because they had, they had their own righteousness. They had the sacrificial system. They had the law. They were Abraham's children. What more did they need? And they expressed this to Jesus when Jesus came. What, what more do we need? We already have what we need. Why is it foolishness to the Greeks? Death is a sign of defeat, not victory in our culture. How do you reconcile the worldly drives for power and wealth with the cross? Now, we're, we've probably come more on the side of the Jews with this. The cross is quite possibly a stumbling block to us because we just, we, we don't need it. We're already good. We're already following the church standards. We're already obeying the law. We're already good citizens. We're already good people. But remember, our righteousness does not cut it with God. God demands perfection. We all have sin. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, the righteousness of the most religious person, the most religious people, does not cut it. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, and we'll explore how justification takes place. In verses 9 through 18, I won't read through this, but in case we missed it, in verses 9 through 18, it explains, like Jason mentioned, how both the Greeks and the Jews have all sinned, both the heathen and and the religious, both those outside, those inside, all have sinned. They're all in the same boat. They all have this major problem. Then we come to verse 19. Jason read it, so I'm not going to read it. I'll just draw a few things out of it here. In verse 19 and 20, it explains to us that the law is there to show us that we can't please God. We can't possibly please God. We can't possibly be perfect before God. The law does not justify us. The law does not declare us righteous. But it does give us a knowledge of sin. Without the law, we wouldn't know what sin is. Verse 21 explains that God's righteousness, not our righteousness, is revealed, which is exactly what the law and the prophets have been pointing to all those years. It's what they saw. We could look at Hebrews uh, in the faith chapter. I think it's Hebrews 11 where it talks about these all died in faith. They didn't receive the promises, but they still embraced them. They still saw them. They still claimed them. And in verse 21 here, we see that the prophets and the law looked ahead and saw this. Verses 22 and 23, the righteousness of God is given by faith in Jesus Christ to both the Jew and the Greek, both the heathen and the, right and the religious, because, in case you missed it, we have all sinned. 
and fallen short of the glory of God. Verses 24 through 26, we are justified freely by his grace through redemption of Christ, through the propitiation of Jesus Christ, which is an atoning sacrifice. What is atonement? Atonement is an exchange or an adjustment of a difference, restoration and reconciliation. So then in verse 27, we have no reason to boast. It's excluded because our justification is not based on a law of works, but a law of faith. And anyone can have faith, regardless of how good they've been, regardless of what they've done, regardless of where they've studied, regardless of what they've read. Everyone can have faith in Christ. And so there is no reason for boasting. There is no openness for boasting. So then in, in verse 31, well, because we are justified through faith, then the law is voided, right? We don't need the law. Now we can do what we want. No, rather we uphold the law. But we can still do what we want because God gives us a new heart and a new want or new desires. But I do have a responsibility in this justification process though, right? Yes, God doesn't force anyone to be justified. It's a free gift and it's a free choice. And we'll look in 1 John chapter 1 to see what that looks like. 1 John chapter 1 verses 7 through 10, and you'll notice here that in each of these verses start with if, as either the first word or the second word. But if we walk in the light, if we, if we say we have no sin, in verse 8, and then verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Because of his justice, God forgives us our sins when we confess. But I want you to look at verses 8 and 10 that are around verse 9. And they remind us not to say, they, they, they remind us to the, admit the reality of who we are. Not to say that we have no sin, not to say that we have not sinned, but rather to confess our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 and 1 Peter 2.22 both indicate that God made Jesus to be sin for us. Jesus did not know sin, but God took our sin and put it on Jesus Christ that we might be that we might be filled with God's righteousness. That's in 2 Corinthians 5:21. And then in 1 Peter 2:22 through 24, God took our sins in his own body that we could be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10 says it this way. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It has been said that justification is this, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. So what are the results of justification? Justification gives us a new status before God not because of the righteous works that we have done, but because of the blood of Christ. Righteousness before God and forgiveness. Justification gives us a new family. We are now included in God's people. We could go farther there in Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks about the wall between the Jews and the Gentiles and how Jesus Christ has broken down that middle wall 
and now everyone together that believes in Christ is part of a new family. And justification gives us a new future as a transformed people living transformed lives to live unto righteousness. What are some things that justification does not do? I listed a few, and I'm sure you could think of some more. Justification does not free us from temptation. It does not take us out of this world. It does not always take away all the physical and emotional consequences of sin. It does not force us to always do the right thing. Those are some things that justification does not do. So in conclusion, what is justification? To be declared righteous before God. Why is justification necessary? God demands perfection, but we've all sinned. And the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, or we might say the righteousness of us Mennonites, we might say, is not enough. It doesn't cut it. How does justification take place? Through confession of sins to God, by grace, through faith in Jesus' atoning sacrifice for us on the cross. And what are some of the results of justification? Justification gives us a new status, a new family, and a new future, even though it does not always take away the scars of past sins. Let's kneel for prayer.